From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Whether you're on the treadmill, washing the dishes, or on the morning commute, we're here for you, and you're doing great. This week, we're talking QED has $925 million to back fintech startups globally. A really great raise, some more capital to go back into the system, both for early stage fintechs and growth stage companies as well. So we discuss where we think that'll be deployed and the impact it might have on the wider investor landscape. High street banks are offering measly interest rates. We're seeing a really interesting divergence between the rates offered by traditional incumbents and some of the new uh, fintech entrants in the market. So we discuss what the impact of that might be and where we think customers will move. And pulp diction, Amazon retires Samuel L. Jackson Alexa feature. We chat AI, voices, sat-navs, the works. We get into all this and much more on today's show. So let's dive in. But first, a few brief messages back shortly. <music> Hello, lovely listeners. We just wanted to let you know that Global Processing Services, otherwise known as GPS, the payments platform trusted by the leading issuers to process billions of transactions a year, have changed their name to Thread. Why Thread? Well, Thread because their tailored payment processing solutions are the thread that connects payments innovators of the future. Thread because they are a true partner, becoming part of the fabric of your business as it grows. And Thread because, well, it just feels right. Find out more at thread.com. That's T-H-R-E-D-D.com. Thread. Weaving payments magic. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Welcome to episode 745 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research and Strategy. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Um, what have you been researching and strategizing lately? Well, we're just kicking off some really interesting research looking at some of the big unsolved problems in commercial banking, so everything from sort of small business banking all the way through up to corporations, which is fascinating because a lot of the focus in fintechs tends to be on the sort of consumer markets, on retail banking, retail insurance, and so on. And yet, actually, a lot of the really big, really thorny, really complex, and actually really valuable problems uh, that are still not solved sit in their commercial areas. So super interesting uh, piece of work that we're just starting. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to you throwing some of those insights in as we go as we go through the news. Awesome. Up next, we have a very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Jason McCoola, publisher at Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Always a privilege to have you on. Why should our listeners check out Fintech Business Weekly if they're not already doing so? What are the what are the awesome things they get? Yeah, it's uh, great to be back. I mean, I think the the key thing I try to do for readers and, and listeners uh, is to separate sort of the PR and talking points from reality, and particularly lately looking at things like changing economic climate, legal regulatory climate to understand um, what's really happening versus sort of what, what companies are saying is happening. And would definitely recommend it. Yeah, always a ton of really, really useful analysis and insights. So thank you very much for joining us. And finally, we have another very welcome return to FinTech Insider for Mike Carter, Head of Platform Lending at Innovate Finance. Thanks for coming back, Mike. Um, can you give our listeners a reminder of you and Innovate Finance, please? Thanks, Kate. So Innovate Finance is the trade association for fintech in the UK. We represent the industry across all different areas for fintech in the UK, both policy and also representing the industry more widely. Um, I look after the uh, investment and platform lending side within Innovate Finance. And I think since we last met, we had our IFGS conference at the Guildhall in April, which I think was probably our best attended ever and had extremely high 
energy and positivity around the sector. Awesome. Well, yeah, if you've, if you've gleaned any gossip from your attendees, then you can throw it into the show as well. Awesome bonus. Um, well, yeah, with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is taken from TechCrunch, and that is QED closes on $925 million to back fintech startups globally. QED investors have announced the closing of two new funds, totaling $925 million. It says the capital will be used to back early-stage financial technology startups, as well as growth rounds for later-stage companies. There is an oversubscribed $650 million early-stage fund, its eighth, and a $275 million growth-stage fund, the second of its kind, both of which are aimed at backing fintech companies primarily in the US, the UK and Europe, Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. Since being founded by Nigel Morris and Frank Rottam, QED has backed more than 200 companies, including 28 unicorns. With these two new funds, QED says it will have more than $4 billion under management. Well, we asked you guys, the listeners on 11FS LinkedIn, is big fintech investment back? And with 160 votes, 15.15% said yes and stronger than ever bunch of optimists. Uh, 52% said no, it's still recovering. And 33% said unsure, too early to tell. Benjamin, where would you have put yourself on that, on those options? I'd say no, still recovering, because I think the the, the sector has taken a bit of a knock. Um, and I think because the interest rate environment has changed, the funding outlook is different to how it was. So I think this is very positive news. I think it's great. Um, but I'd say it's a sign of recovery of confidence rather than saying stronger than ever because you know, mathematically it's not stronger than ever yet. Yeah. Jason, were you excited when you when you saw the news of these funds? What do you, what impact do you think they'll have? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to work for at least two companies in which QED was an investor and, and actually like spend some time with, with people at the fund. And I mean, I think inarguably, you know, it is one of, if not the premier fintech focused VC. I think it's absolutely correct to interpret it as a positive sign for funding in the overall VC ecosystem. Uh, I do agree with Ben that you know I think it's a bit early to say that you know big rounds are back between you know the interest rate point that he cited, as well as uncertainty around some of the crossover investors who are writing those mega checks. Your SoftBank, your Tiger Global, you know, are they still going to be playing in? This space, writing you know multi hundred million dollar checks into late round private companies, that I think remains to be seen. Absolutely, um, Mike. Do you do you think you know does confidence breed confidence in this kind of space? Like if 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 QED have raised this round, do you think others will follow? Well, I think that there there is a certain truth in that because they are so well regarded. I, I think that. Um, it's clearly the case that the sector has not yet started to recover, or VC generally hasn't started to recover in terms of investment levels. But the, the smart VC funds will raise money ahead of when they think the upturn is coming. And that seems to be what they've done. And it's a, it's a, it's a great leading indicator and, and a great testimony to what they're expecting to, to see in terms of investment opportunities in the, in, the, in the coming years. So they're getting the money ready now for investment. So I think that's a great sign. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I suppose Benjamin, like you know, if if you had tons of money to invest in fintech, like it's now actually quite a good time to be an investor because we've seen valuations become more realistic. Obviously, you know, companies are having to fight for funding more. Is is it a better time to be an investor if you're taking that sort of more optimistic approach? I suppose. I mean, not investing advice, of course, but you know, people always say buy the dip, right? So when the sector is when a sector is in trouble, that is a good time to buy if you've got capital and also if you've got some logic, right? If you're just buying willy nilly, just investing randomly, that, that you know, you're not necessarily going to have success. But if you're smart enough to be able to pick out companies that are you know good companies um, that are in difficulty uh, or need funding, then yes, it's a great time to buy. When, you know, because when you, when you've got overvaluation, it's very hard to find good investments. So a drop in valuations, if you've got capital, um, is an ideal time to buy if you've got the capital and if you know what you're investing in and why. Yeah. Um, Jason, from from your perspective, what is it that you think makes for an, an attractive fintech investment in today's market? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I'm going to repeat some of the cliches that you're probably already familiar with, but the the you know the attitude has shifted from 
growth at all costs. And that is something that was powered by those super big checks, you know, going into companies that ended up getting spent on marketing, trying to win market share, trying to win customers to unit economics and route to profitability, right? So if you're, you know, if you're a QED or, you know, another VC looking at a company now, that is the current lens. Does, you know, does this company have, you know, competitive differentiation? Does it have a plausible path to a business model where the unit economics will make sense? I mean, I think the the days of, you know, $600 million rounds, which, you know, Klarna raised at one point, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. You know, I don't think those are coming back anytime soon. Mike, what, what impact have you seen this shifting environment have on, on your members? Uh, well, I think um, some of them have certainly had to pause in terms of their capital raising aspirations. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen some high profile down rounds. Um, and it, so it's, it's required a, a shift in mindset in terms of um, how they're going to generate their, their cash flow. And so I think what we saw last year was companies raising less than they had intended because the valuation was low, so they didn't want to have so much dilution, but but they still needed the cash to run the business. So we saw cost-cutting, which we haven't seen for for a long time in the sector, or in some cases we've never never seen before. So staff reductions, perhaps slowing down some parts of the the edges of the the business plan, so that would um, help to save some of the cash, put that together with the cash they are raising, and that funds the plan through to the next level. So it's it's required a, a, a different mindset for the for the business over the next couple of years. Yes, absolutely. It's a really interesting perspective. Um, I saw an interesting quote, Benjamin, from one of the partners at QED, um, who was saying, you know, fintechs go where the banks don't. You know, they fill spaces the banks do not. Like, you know, Do you think that's still true? We've obviously seen lots of the big banks really focus on on raising their game and, and starting to do you know, more challenging and interesting things themselves. I think it is true. I think there's a number of reasons why it's true. Um, one is that, you know, although there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of super smart people in banks who can see the customer problems, getting the organization backing you to invest in solving that problem can be difficult. You know, particularly when, you know, banks can often generate plenty of profit in other areas. You know, what's the temptation to go and invest in sometimes, you know, apparently small problems and so on. Uh, So that's one issue. Another challenge for banks is most banks have geographic licenses, right? Some of the biggest problems that fintechs are going after are actually cross borders and you're looking to expand internationally. That's incredibly difficult to do as as a bank. You know, let's say you're, you're running a brilliant Polish bank and you innovate brilliantly in Poland. It's actually quite hard to then take that to Romania or Austria or, or, or wherever. Um, so I think there's a series of challenges that people inside banks or insurance companies or whatever who've got great ideas have in taking those to market. And then you've finally got the risk thing. Um, you know, for some of these ideas, particularly if you're kind of at the edge of regulation or, you know, you're trying to do something a bit new, um, doing that from a banking license isn't necessarily the smartest thing because you create a whole bunch of headaches for all of your compliance and regulation colleagues. Better to go and do that in a startup, experiment in a, a space where you can maybe, you know, take a few more risks. Well, obviously, you know, work to, working with the regulators. So I think there's a number of reasons why fintechs still have advantages in going to smaller opportunities that banks don't fill. Absolutely, for sure. Um Jason, I suppose I was interested in the geographic areas that QED talked about when they announced these these funds. Um, I suppose notably to my mind, like not mentioning the Middle East. Um, they've talked in um, you know, some of their other releases about you know India and Southeast Asia being particular geographies of interest. You know, what what do you see as the most likely places for this funding to actually get deployed in, in geographical terms? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my point of view, particularly when it comes to, you know, retail and SMB banking is it's challenging in markets that are already very well developed, right? And not that there hasn't been, you know, a huge fintech presence in the UK or in the US, uh, but to the question that you just asked Benjamin, it tended to focus on segments of the market that were not particularly well served by establishment banks, right? So if you look at, uh, in the UK example, what was Revolut's wedge, 
you know, 4x because the establishment banks, you know, were pricing it in a way that was, you know, arguably gouging consumers. You look in the US case, Chime, Vero, etc., they were serving customers that were having bad experiences at establishment banks because to be blunt, they were poor and they were getting hit with overdraft, NSF and min balance fees. But the reality is these are ultimately relatively smaller segments with perhaps um, not as attractive uh, economics or profitability. So when you're talking about you know investing you know outside of US UK or outside of developed markets, you know I think it becomes much more interesting, particularly in that like retail and SMB segment. We've seen the success that Newbank has had in Brazil, and if I were you know if I were a VC, I would be asking myself. Where do we think we can replicate the kinds of success some startups have had in markets like Brazil or Mexico? Um, there t- does tend to be a bias just towards size, right? So India is obviously attractive given just the sheer scale of the country, um, as well as uh, you know some considerations around sort of like the legal regulatory climate that may make some markets more or less attractive. You mentioned um, the Middle East, for example, being one that is perhaps less attractive. You know, I've done some work with clients there and was surprised at how different and lengthy um, the licensing procedures were when it came to interacting with regulators. So if I'm you know, put a VC hat on and say, where do I want to deploy my money? You know, maybe it's not into markets where there's a perception, you know, correct or not correct, that the regulatory um, apparatus is going to be slow to work with new companies. Yeah, that makes um, a ton of sense. And as you say, like all sorts of different considerations, but definitely great news to kind of see this additional funding available and we're looking forward to kind of seeing how they deploy it and and kind of which fintechs they they give their backing to, so one to watch. Okay, our next story comes from the Guardian newspaper and that is that UK banks are shortchanging savers with measly rates, says which. UK banks are paying savers measly rates on their cash even as the Bank of England has taken its base interest rate to the highest level in more than a decade, according to a study from the consumer group which consumers face rates as low as 0.1% for some instant access savings account which found. That appears particularly low when compared with the Bank of England's key interest rate, which was set at 4.5% in May. This is the highest level for the central bank's base rate since 2008, in the height of the global financial crisis. Consumers may be better off switching from the high street bank in order to get the most attractive rates, the consumer groups report added. Um, Mike, are consumers being shortchanged? Well, I'm actually going to come out in um, support of the banks on, on, unexpectedly on this one. Um, I think that you have to understand where they've come from since the financial crisis. Their capital requirements have doubled as a result of Basel III. Their liquidity requirements have increased dramatically. And certainly in the UK, the large banks have quite poor profitability. Um, they trade below book. Their, their, their investment case isn't, isn't particularly good. And so a rising interest rate environment gives them the first opportunity since the financial crisis to actually start to try and earn a greater spread and, and to earn what, what should be a profitability for the business. Most of them aren't covering their own cost of capital. So the, as, as base rates go up, they increase the rates on, on their loans, but also they, they don't raise the savings rate so much in order to, to create some spread for the business. And that is just the economics of running a large bank following the financial crisis. That wasn't economics before the financial crisis, but it is, it is the economics now. So savers may feel hard changed by looking at the reference rate from the Bank of England, but that doesn't mean to say that's the rate that's available to them. The flip side is it does actually create opportunities for challenges for, for fintechs. Um, and if you look at people like Asim and Monzo on their sort of one-year accounts, they're offering quite high rates. So the rates are there if um, customers want to go and find them, but it, it requires them to get over their inertia and to, to go and find them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a really interesting... I think, as you say, like there's tons of, of really important calculations that sit underneath the surface that the vast majority of customers just don't see, and I think it's right to highlight them. Um, but I did, I posted on my LinkedIn, actually, I received two emails on the same day from two banks. One was a 
large incumbent bank that sent me an email saying, the Bank of England base rate has changed. Your credit card rate is going up. No mention of anything to do with savings. Uh, Whereas I received an email from Monzo the exact same day saying, your interest rate has gone up automatically. And I just, you know that they're different. You know that they have different commercial models. But for me, just trying to think just about myself as an individual, experiencing that moment of those two pieces of communication in totally different language as well, side by side on the same day, you just think... We tend to think about interest rates just as sort of like commercial levers that we dial up and down. But for I think from my customer perspective, you know, to the ordinary person, it's really about a sort of how a how a bank is valuing me as a customer and what is this sort of value exchange that we're having between me as a customer and you as an organization. So I think there's lots of practical reasons behind it, but I think it's a very difficult challenge for these these incumbents to to maintain when there's Big companies, big big established fintechs, as you say, that are pushing hard on it. Benjamin, what was your what was your take? I, I'm going to disagree with Mike because you, you're quite right about you know higher cost of capital from from Basel and so on. Um, but the fact remains that the banks are taking advantage, as you said, of the opportunity of interest rate rising to widen their net interest margins. Right? They could have done that, you know, before they could have increased. Um, the rates they were charging, you know, for lending money out and so on. Um, you know, the fact is they are taking advantage of that and they are taking advantage of customer inertia, right? And the dirty secret of retail financial services in pretty much every market in the world is that banks make a lot of their profit from customers not doing what's rational because they're not paying attention. Um, and, so, you know, some customers are just frankly bad at maths, right? You know, all of us went to school. There were people in our class who were good at maths and there were people in our class who were not good at maths. Um, and then to the point Jason was making earlier, you know, a lot of the opportunities that some of the US consumer fintechs picked up on was opportunities where, you know, really poorer customers are sort of suffering. Um, so, yes, this is coldly rational, but is it actually good customer strategy? Um, are customers going to remember this? Customers notice this, right? You know, this is why it's being written about. This is why it's being talked about. It creates an opportunity, as you said, for other companies to come in and, and take some of those customers. But sadly, it does mean that people who are not paying attention to their finances, which probably includes me, um, are losing out. Um, so I don't think it's very smart. I can understand why you know someone sitting in the treasury in a bank thinks this is clever, but I suspect there are probably some people in the retail distribution um, parts of banks who are pulling their hair out and saying, this is so bad. Jason, I'll give you a chance to throw your hat in the ring as well. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, this this uh, phenomenon, which in you know banking terminology is known as the deposit beta, or when the central bank raises rates, what percent of that or how much of that actually flows through to the depositor, to a consumer. Uh, th- this is not, you know, unique to the UK. I mean, in uh, in getting ready for this conversation, I actually logged into my American bank account. Uh, and do you want to guess what the interest rate on my savings account there is? Um, point not one. It's uh, point yeah point zero one percent. So even <laughs> even lower even lower than uh, than your high street banks. Uh, I mean I think you know a couple points. Um, you know one. Unfortunately, the reality is that most consumers don't have enough money in their account that it really makes a significant difference. Right. So I was looking at Monzo's recent um, annual report. And back of envelope math put the average balance uh, per per account per user at about eight hundred pounds. So if you make an extra two percent, and off the top of my head, I don't know what Monzo is offering, but okay, let's use your zero point one percent. If you bump that up to two point one percent, how much extra are you making on eight hundred pounds in a year? I'm not going to make you guys do the math. It's 16 quid. So do you want to deal with the hassle of opening up a new account and moving your funds to earn an extra you know, 16, 20, 30 quid a year? Most people probably are not going to go through the trouble of doing that. So yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you're, you're right, or the, the, you know, the article from which is right that you know, the, the banks, many of the banks, you know, both in the UK and US, are paying substantially lower rates than what is um, you know what the what the Fed funds rate or Fed funds rate equivalent is. You know, on the flip side, to Mike's point, like that is the business of banking, right? Uh, borrow cheap, 
lend expensive or borrow short, lend long term. Um, and, and managing that risk is is essentially what you know what we're paying banks to do. Um, you know, for the customers who are motivated enough to to you know search out that better deal or who have enough money on deposit in a savings account that it matters, there are there are better rates available. I mean, I think one last quick point: um, there are some interesting. Uh, potentially negative impacts uh, from this rising rate environment. In and I apologize, I apologize for the American centric uh, point of view, but like money market funds in the U.S. are offering comparable or higher rates than even the highest online savings accounts or term deposits. And those money market funds, many of them end up parking those funds at the Federal Reserve. And so the impact of that is that liquidity is draining from the system, deposits are leaving the banking system and going elsewhere, which in turn means banks have less liquidity and less ability to lend. So, I mean, it it is sort of a very complex ecosystem of who's responding to what incentives and and sort of what are the first, second, and third order impacts of that. Yeah, no, I think that's... um... That's definitely a really great perspective to, to throw into the mix. I suppose the one thing to your point about customer inertia and like, is it worth moving on, like setting up a new account for £16? I think I completely agree. Like, it's very difficult to create the energy to, to make someone open a new account. But I suppose the thing that feels different to me is we're not, in the UK at least, you know, we're seeing huge numbers of people now already having an account with a Monzo or a Starling or a Revolut and it might be sort of sat dormant. It might have been something that you opened for a holiday a couple of years ago and you've kind of parked and you've not used it a ton. But actually, it's probably there and it's probably relatively easy for you to just open the app back up on your phone and move that money across. So I think kind of the, again, I think if this had happened four or five years ago, maybe the banks would have been less at risk because there would have been a higher barrier to people moving their money into some of these other accounts. But, you know, we're seeing... 1.6 million customers with Chase now, even you know, a relatively new entrant in the UK. So I think it is a different landscape. I don't know. Mike, what do you reckon? Do you think banks are at risk here? Or? I mean, I think it's a, it's a much bigger issue. It's not just around interest rates. I mean, I think that across all sorts of different areas, current, current accounts and general service, it's an issue in particular on a generational basis. I mean, my, my daughter, she's 17, has had a children's savings account forever with the high street bank that I bank with and when we wanted to get a current account for her recently they said yes you'd have to come in and do KYC and I said no she's already a customer and they said no you've got to make an appointment I said fine they said that's three months for the next appointment <laughs> oh, wow. why is it three months because oh, NatWest have just shot their branch in the high street and everyone's coming into here and they said but you can do it on the video interview so I tried that but there were no slots available for a time when she wasn't at school and there were no telephone appointments available. So I'd kind of drawn this blank, and then she just went online and opened a Monzo account. I was going to say, my daughter opened, so, a, my daughter opened a Starling account yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. I mean, She's 17. So gen- generationally, they, they don't, you know, they're doing it themselves, and the change, the change is going to happen for other reasons. That the, the interest rate will be a, a, sec- a secondary reason, I think, as to why they switch. And there's a huge number of banks all around the world that have got aging customer bases because they're losing that younger generation um, because of a whole bunch of reasons like how easy it is to open an account and things like this. And I take your point, Mike, that, that most banks don't make money on retail uh, bank accounts. Um, but this this kind of behavior is dangerous because it, it teaches a generation of customers or a group of customers, hey, the bank's kind of ripping you off. And even if they're not, it doesn't feel good. Yeah, definitely a, a really interesting trade-off and and really interesting to see kind of who the winners and losers are. And I suppose, yeah, how long this interest rate environment lasts for, right? Because, you know, we, everything could change and and then we're, we're back. This is, these are certainly, certainly not normal times and, and normal rates. So one for us to, to keep our eyes on. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider Blockchain Insider 11FS Spotlight 11FS Explores Open Mic Night After Dark Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters and live events we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community so if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs then chat to our team at sponsors at 11FS.com or visit 11FS.com to find out more Long live the community. Welcome back. 
Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insights show. We've put together an all-star panel of 11s to talk about how not to build a bank. Join Ross Gallagher, David Breer, Ewan Silver, Naz Ahmed and me for this sharing of the battle scars of building banks around the world. An essential lesson for anyone launching a financial services product. So go check that podcast out wherever you got this one from. Okay, let's get back into the news. Our next story comes from the Financial Times, and this is Klarna's losses halve as Swedish fintech predicts return to profit. Klarna halved its losses in the first quarter as a Swedish buy now, pay later pioneer said it was on course to return to profit by the end of the year. Once Europe's most valuable private tech company, Klarna said on Friday that its net losses narrowed to 1.3 billion Swedish krona, or $120 million, in the quarter, while credit losses shrank more than a third. Its revenues rose 13.13% to 4.9 billion Swedish krona. The company is expecting to be profitable again by August or September. It last made an annual profit in 2018, a quarterly profit in the second quarter of 2019, and a monthly profit in August 2020. Um, well, I mean, Benjamin, we were talking earlier about the return of, or non-return, of big fintech investments. So do, you, do these figures from Klarna show that buy now, pay later is back for bang? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, thing with, the thing with lending is it's easy to lend the money out. It's hard getting it back, right? So the test of any lending business model doesn't happen until three, four, five years later, you know, depending on the tenure of the, of the loan. Um, Klan has been operating for a long time, right? It's 10, 11, 12-year-old company. 15. 15, is it? Thank you. Um, you, know, this, you know, to not be profitable at this point is, is not great. You know, we're talking about, hey, they made a profit in this month and they made a profit in that month. And, and again, it's very hard running a business and I get that, you know, the economy has been against them and so on. Um, but they've got to be looking at their credit scoring and saying, okay, what what's going on here? You know, why are, why are we losing money? Um, you know, because making smaller losses is still making losses. Um, so, no, I don't think this shows that buy now, pay later is back with a vengeance. I think it shows that it's still a very challenging business model. It's clever, but it's still very challenging to, to make work. Jason, do you think Klarna will achieve profitability later this year as they're forecasting? Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step up and uh, defend, defend uh, Klarna on this one. I mean, I, I do agree that... Um, you know, I don't think buy now, pay later is is back with a vengeance. You know, I don't think you're going to see Klarna return to the whatever forty seven billion valuation it, it had at one point. Um, I do think that that Klarna is one of the more interesting companies, interesting stories in the BNPL space, in the sense that uh, I believe it had a track record of like multiple years of profitability before BNPL blew up as a category. And that you know that um, fundraising round I alluded to earlier is like six hundred forty million, valuing it at forty seven billion, um, was over the course of the pandemic. And you know if if SoftBank shows up and offers you a check for six hundred and forty million dollars, valuing your company you know at almost fifty billion, I, I imagine it's very very difficult to say no to that. Right, and so I know now it's very, very hard to remember what the world looked like in whatever 2020, 2021. But it, it you know, I imagine was not an irrational decision to say we're going to take this money and we're going to expand as rapidly as we possibly can. Right, launch in the U.S., launch in Mexico, expand in Europe, etc. Um, and you know, not surprisingly, that that turned into swinging to significant, I mean, huge losses, both from operational expenses and, to Ben's point, credit losses, right? You might be, you know, uh, used to lending in Sweden or used to lending in the UK. Entering a new market, in many ways, in the lending business, is starting an entirely new business. You have different data sources, you have different regulations, consumers have different behavior. And so it's not surprising that Klarna racked up huge losses as they grew very, very quickly, both on you know provision for loan loss as well as you know marketing expense, other opex. Uh, so, I mean, I think you know this report is certainly positive in the sense that Klarna 
seems to be pulling the levers they need to pull, right, to try to reduce credit losses, uh, reduce you know, whatever else marketing spends, you know, I don't know if they did, I can't remember if they did layoffs or not. They're pulling the levers they need to pull to move this in the right direction. You know, do I think it's going to be, you know, ever recapture that sort of peak of the market, whatever, 18 months ago? No, like that, that for a number of reasons, you know, I don't think those numbers were ever realistic. Uh, and when you take a sort of sober look at these businesses and, and not just Klarna, to be fair, you look at a firm, which is publicly traded, slightly different product mix, uh, but quite comparable. Or you look at, you know, Afterpay and try to sort of deduce what Afterpay inside of Block, you know, should reasonably be worth now. All of these companies are down 80, 90%. So I think maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, than Ben is. I am actually speaking with Klarna's chief commercial officer soon, which I'm going to release as a podcast so listeners can take a look and, and see if that's uh, out by the time this show comes out. Oh, nice. Yeah, definitely, definitely want to keep an eye out for it. Mike, where do you sit on the optimism spectrum for Klarna? Um, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about them, actually. And as, as has been said, they have been around for a long time. I think it's almost 20 years, actually. And they were profitable every year up until about four or five years ago. They, they link in very well with the topics we've already been discussing, actually. So they are a bank in Sweden, and they're 95% funded through bank deposits, I think. So they've probably got the cheapest funding cost of anyone in, in the market. Even if they were paying base rate, they'd be cheaper than anyone else funding through the wholesale market. So they've got a really good funding advantage. The loans are only three months, which means you can change your credit criteria very rapidly. And so I think they, I think they have brought any credit issues uh, back under control. And it, it seems from the outside that they put their foot to the floor a few years ago in terms of expansion around Europe, but also into the US, which I think is not going to be their biggest market. Uh, you know, they spent a lot of money doing that. And now they've had to cut the costs with the capital raising last year. And, you know, they're going to be profitable, I think, more because they've cut costs than anything else. So it sort of slowed down their expansion rates, but um, but they have, have grown into key large markets. Yeah. And, um, and I think they've built good good market positions. You know, very few European companies have gone to the US and succeeded. And they they may well uh, have a chance to do that. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting about the the US in particular in the in the investor note that kind of accompanied accompanied these these releases. You know, they did zoom in on that. You know, in the US, it's seen sort of double digit gross merchandise volume growth in this in this period, and they've said that their credit loss rates have improved by sixty four percent. So obviously, kind of focusing on on growth in the US, and, and we know how important that is. Um, Benjamin, we've also seen Klarna. You know, do some new initiatives recently around um, giving customers more control over their over their accounts and and you know, giving them the ability to switch off access to to these products. You know how how impressed or unimpressed were you by that? I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think what the industry as a whole needs to do is look after customers. And I know that obviously there's regulations and so on that are putting more pressure on financial services companies to look after their customers. But particularly when you're dealing with retail customers. Um, it is important for firms to recognize that customers don't always understand their finances. Some do, some understand their finances perfectly, and others don't. And so giving people help to understand this product might not be right for you, this product might not be good for you, you actually should think carefully before you do this, um, I think is is completely the right path to go down. Um, I think also at some point, you know, companies like Klarna, you know, Buy now, pay later is great, but are they going to have wider relationships with customers? And if they're going to do that, they need to start thinking about, well, how else might we help customers? And so building a, a broader relationship with customers that's actually helping customers a bit more um, is, I think, a, a good step. How serious that is, I don't know. Um, actually, one other just thing, just very quickly, I, I should also point out I, that Klarna has survived. You know, there are plenty of buy now, pay later companies in Australia and elsewhere that have, have collapsed. So for all that I'm giving, I was giving Klarna a hard time. You know, they are still in business and they've taken some of the right steps, as, as you as you rightly said. Um, so I think it's good. I think it's good that Klarna is looking at trying to bring in some financial health um, features and trying to think about how do we look after our customers, not just lend to them. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I guess I have the two parts of my brain, like the kind of like happy optimistic side and the skeptical side and the skeptical side makes me think like are, you know, are they understandably just trying to get ahead of the the regulatory curve you know we know that there's going to be increasing regulatory pressure on the buy now pay later space and maybe they're just trying to 
get get brownie points ahead of that. But, but you know, if regulators can check and make companies behave better and look after their customers just by talking about possibly regulating them, then that's a good outcome for customers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Okay, moving on to our next story. This one is taken from TechCrunch. Plenty's new wealth-building app targets couples blending finances. Relationships are complicated. However, thanks to some fintech companies, mingling the finances of these modern couples can be easy. Plenty, a company that helps couples discuss, manage, and invest their money together, is the latest to launch its platform. It's focused on millennials who want access to wealth-building opportunities that take into account their relationship status. Users connect their financial accounts and then can choose which accounts to share with their partners. There is also a cash management product, a portfolio backed by Money Market Funds, your favourite, Jason, currently offering 4.83% annual percentage yield. To find out more about what gap plenty are looking to fill in the US market, we reached out to Emily Luck, CEO and co-founder, for some more information. When we decided to build Plenty, it was driven by three major demographic shifts. First, individuals between 25 and 45 years old are the second largest generation in the country. And they're entering this life stage where they're reaching these new life milestones, like they're looking to get married, buy a house or upgrade their home, start a family or grow a family, starting to think a lot more about things like retirement, whenever that might be. Second, they're also entering their highest earning years, but they're not quite there yet. And they're just starting to build up what they have. Third, More than 65% of this generation is partnered up, of which over 80% are dual career couples. And when you talk to these individuals and you look at their biggest needs and pain points, they're saying things like, where do we put our money and how do we invest it? And critically, how do we do this together? The average household makes $92,000 and the average financial planner costs $2,500 to $7,000 per year. That model is just totally broken for the majority of this generation. And even things like building tech to make financial planners more efficient, it just wasn't going to make a big enough difference. We believe the key to changing this paradigm is an automation. Automating the value of financial planner, or better yet, automating the value of the white glove service level of wealth management, but at a price point affordable to all. Jason, come to you, come to you first on this one. What was what was your verdict on this? Can tools like this help couples break the financial debate? I mean, I think any any additional options uh, are helpful, right? I mean, I think um, you know financial decisions tend to be one of, if not the most uh, stressful conversations in in many relationships, uh, and I think you know people. Mm, negotiate those conversations and challenges differently, right? Uh, I do think, you know, something like a simple joint account is something that has been around for, you know, eons. And we've seen like zero innovation or evolution of what that product is and what it enables um, couples to do. So I think, you know, an offering like Plenty at least moves that conversation forward. Benjamin, are you going to be signing up? Uh, No, because I'm not an American, so I'm not (laughs) eligible. Um, But actually, I think Emily is spot on in her sort of her description of of the problem, um, that this is actually a difficult area. It's surprisingly difficult to even open a joint account, to your point, Jason. And then, you know, there's actually a whole variety of different flavors of it because um, there are sort of accounts which are tenancy in common. What happens when one of the partners dies? Because, you know, of course, that can happen. What happens if you split up, etc.? So it is quite complex. And this whole area of shared finances is actually, I think, one of the the, the few areas in consumer fintech that hasn't been particularly well addressed. Um, It's really common in a relationship, either for the partners not to talk to each other about money, but also for one of them to know more about money than the other. I'm sure, you know, most of our listeners, one of you in your, you know, those of you who are in couples, one of you in the couple is better at finances than the other. Probably the one of you who's listening because you're in fintech, (laughs) Um, but not necessarily, right? And, you know, I always think... 
all of us, you know, the, the ideal private banker we would have would be, you know, someone good looking of the opposite sex, i.e. probably our partner, right? Um, or not necessarily opposite sex, but you know what I mean. Um, so if you can get your partner to manage your finances for you, wonderful, fantastic. Someone you trust to manage your money for you, brilliant. And I think the other area where I think Emily is absolutely spot on is the point she's talking about, about the cost of financial advice and financial planners. That is, to me, the big last unsolved problem in retail financial services. So if she can combine or, or if plenty can combine fixing joint accounts, making it easier for people to share and pool their finances with better financial advice that uses automation. Brilliant. I think she's onto, onto a winner. So I think this is really, really exciting. And I wish Emily and her team every success because I think this is really, really interesting area. Mike, amongst your members, do you kind of see many fintechs that you think are doing interesting things in this space? Um, I haven't seen this in particular. I mean, I think there's been a lot of attempt to innovate around current accounts and deposit accounts and in, in those kind of areas. And I think, to Benjamin's point, um, there, there has been very little innovation, or in, very little innovation around jointly held accounts, investment accounts, assets, anything like that. And, uh, and I think that definitely needs to be improved and needs to be made simple and easy and for people to think of it as a matter of course rather than thinking of it as um, something difficult that they've got to go and find out how to do it. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I get told off by my husband for chatting about him too much on this show. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably shouldn't go into all the details of our, like, our, our money management system as a couple. But I think the interesting thing is about striking that right balance between wanting to share some things but also wanting to retain a degree of financial independence or having the ability to to kind of create that personal balance because it will vary from from couple to couple. Like some couples will want to share absolutely everything and some couples, such as myself, will still want to be able to have like some money that you get to keep for yourself to spend on the things that you enjoy that maybe your partner might tell you off for purchasing. Wait, is this is this strictly necessary? You know, etc. That doesn't happen anywhere. No couples like that at all. No couples like that at all. But no, I think that is the thing. This is something that we see you know, even outside of couples. I think we see this in um, you know individual accounts as well. Like this difficult balance between taking friction out of financial experiences and then putting it back in. And I think this is something that kind of the whole financial services space is kind of trying to work out. Like, how do you how do you kind of strike that balance between things being smooth and connected and simple, but then having some things which are hived off and set away and hidden from view? So, no, I, I agree, Benjamin. I think definitely wish them wish them a lot of a lot of luck. Um, Jason, it's interesting. Obviously, plenty have gone for in terms of how they're set up. You know, they require this initial deposit. I think hundred dollars, and then they're charging a one hundred and fifty dollar annual membership fee for individuals or two hundred dollars per couple. What's your take on kind of the subscription model in financial services generally? Is it, is it a good idea? So I'm of two minds about this. Uh, I suppose maybe that has to do with like being American and having worked in American uh, financial services and now living in Europe where it's completely normal to pay a monthly fee for your current account. You know, whether, it, whether it's a neobank or an establishment bank, they tend to carry like monthly service fees, subscription fees. Um, you know, I do think that in uh, in the U.S. market, charging a subscription is going to dramatically limit the number of people who are interested in signing up for the product. I mean, people are just so accustomed to the idea that these kinds of products should be free. And for listeners, I'm making air quotes because, of course, you know, they're they're not free to operate um, for the bank, right? So then they need to figure out the you know the monetization model, whether it's things like interchange on debit cards or you know hitting you with overdraft fees or whatever. So I mean, again, on the one hand, it's like I appreciate the transparency of saying, hey, it costs money to run this service, and we're going to charge a fee. From a business model perspective, in markets where consumers are have been trained not to pay fees, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get people to want to pay for it. Yeah, I think Jason is spot on because the big problem is that people don't recognize the value of financial advice. They're so used to financial advice being sort of ha, sort of given for free or offered for free, and it's not really free, that people don't appreciate that actually spending $500 or $1,000 or whatever with a financial planner or financial advisor 
could actually save you tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But because people don't understand that, to Jason's point, they won't want to pay the upfront money, even though actually that could turn out to be a really good investment because it could save them a tax thing or help them understand an investment opportunity or whatever. So the big problem is people don't understand, don't recognize the value of financial advice. Yeah, no, it's a really difficult thing to to communicate. Mike, I'll give you the last word on this one. Can, Can fintech... Does fintech have the power to save relationships? <laughs> I'm sure it can. I love it. I love the optimism. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Benjamin, what are you going to start us off with? So this is a story that property fintech Lendinvest has sold a £243 million buy-to-let mortgage portfolio following various financing deals, which was reported in City AM. London-listed property fintech Lendinvest has confirmed the sale of a £243 million buy-to-let mortgage portfolio to digital bank Chetwood Financial. The portfolio includes mortgages originated between the 1st of March 2022 and the 30th of November, during which time interest rates hikes reduced the profitability of the mortgages. Lend Invest will take a £10.5 million loss on the sale, which will be recognised in its 2024 results, largely offsetting a £10.8 million profit booked in April from the sale of its residual interests in a bunch of securitised products. The funds from the sale will be used to repay the facilities that finance the assets in the first place. Lend Invest said this will allow the capital to be redeployed in new mortgages with stronger margins. Um, yeah, I think this is you know fairly normal uh, portfolio sale. Um, this a lot of managing a portfolio is really about getting economies of scale and so on. So if Chatwood can run that portfolio more efficiently. Um, then that's all to the good. I think the only danger you get is when the originating lender and the company that ends up holding the book become very far apart, that you can get quite a bit of risk coming into the system because the the company buying the portfolio doesn't really know what's in it and so on, and you can get some systemic risk that can build up in that way. But otherwise, I think this is a fairly a fairly normal and not particularly surprising deal. Yeah, I think it's um, doing an interesting mix of things. Chetwood, they're also... Chetwood is interesting, yeah. yeah, yeah. Building yeah. a bank with mums in it as well, so keeping my eyes peeled for that one. Um, our next story in this section comes from Sky News, and that is HSBC opts for innovation in rebranding of Silicon Valley Bank UK. HSBC will next month unveil a new name for the technology-focused bank it rescued early this year after its US parent collapsed. Sky News has learned that Europe's biggest lender intends to rebrand Silicon Valley Bank UK, SVB UK, under the name HSBC Innovation Banking. The new identity is expected to be announced to coincide with London Tech Week, which kicks off on the 12th of June. One tech veteran told Sky News it may stoke concerns among entrepreneurs that by bringing SVB UK under the HSBC brand, the new subsidiary was at risk of surrendering the operational independence that had made a distinctive presence in the SME banking market. Um, yeah, I mean, just generally really interesting to watch how things are playing out after HSBC rode in on their sort of shiny one-pound rescue horse um, during the SVB crisis generally. Um, you know, up until this point, it seemed like the focus has been on trying to retain key staff. You know, it was reported that just lot just after the sale, they signed off between sort of fifteen and twenty million pounds in bonuses for employees. You know, the key executives and board members seem to be staying on board. So continuation in that sense, but um yeah, I suppose HSBC SVB would have just been like too many, <laughs> too many letters. So it makes sense that they're they're changing it and and obviously Silicon Valley Bank as a brand now is is sort of tarnished but a little bit underwhelmed, I suppose, by innovation banking. But I suppose the most important thing is really waiting to see, you know, do they still continue to have that focus on those those entrepreneurs and those businesses that really, really benefited from that SVB focus um, and from the support that they provided? And can that be maintained even within the boundaries of, of HSBC and their, you know, undoubtedly uh, less risk, less risky approach to, to, to lending? Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This comes from Engadget, and that is Amazon ditches Alexa's celebrity voices and will issue refunds upon request. Much like many of his movie roles, Samuel L. Jackson has been killed off from another acting gig. 
Amazon is ditching all of its Alexa-enabled celebrity voices, including Shaquille O'Neal, Melissa McCarthy, and Samuel L. Jackson. The distinct voice options will no longer be available for purchase and will no longer function. This feature was an add-on for Alexa that transformed its usual chirpy tones into that of a celebrity. The voice assistants could tell jokes, answer questions, and complete simple voice-assisted tasks. I mean, I mainly just got, I just didn't even realise this was a thing. Like, I've been using Alexa for all sorts of nonsense for ages and I could have had Samuel L. Jackson in my house. I feel feel kind of sad. Um, Mike, have you got Samuel L. Jackson in your house? Or? Like you, Kate, I had no idea you could get these names. I'm disappointed as well because I've got a few Alexas and I didn't know that, uh, that we could have got celebrity voices, so I feel I've missed out here. Benjamin, have, have you, I feel like you won't have Alexa in your house. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> I'm going to sound slightly paranoid, but I'm always wondering what they do with some of the data. Um, I'm not sure that's paranoid. I think that's a fairly sensible you know, concern There, there have been so many incidents of people being shown advertising for something that they were talking about, you know, just a few hours earlier, um, that I'm not actually particularly keen on having somebody recording everything that's going on in my household. Yeah, no. not that there's anything underwater going on in my household. I just don't, <laughs> I just don't like the idea of big tech um, making extensive use of my data. So I'm personally not a huge Alexa fan, even if it's Samuel Jackson. Oh well, I didn't say I wasn't a Samuel L. Jackson fan. Okay, but, um, okay, fair enough. Um, Jason, like, does Alexa actually lead to more purchases from Amazon? Like, is it what what kind of contribution is it making to Amazon's business? Do you think? I have no idea. I own. One or two Alexas, and honestly, neither of them are are plugged in. I, I realize as like a tech or like tech adjacent person, I'm like very much like a late adopter for some of this stuff. I mean, even you know, I I use Siri incrementally, and usually I just get annoyed. I mean, maybe now that we have you know generative AI, it's going to like make all this stuff work better. Um, but it, it's really unclear to me to what extent. Um, Alexa, and I think Amazon also, I don't know if they still do this, had um, like buttons you could buy. So like a literal physical button that was like, send me more laundry detergent. I have no idea if they're still doing that or or, or what, um, how creative it was to their revenue creation. So maybe one of the other guests knows the answer. (laughs) No, I, I remember seeing, I remember seeing the same thing advertised to me when I bought like all of the baby merch I bought around when my son was born because I think clearly it's mainly targeted at parents that are very like stressed and time poor and just want to press a button like send help send help send help <laughs> um but no I, I don't know if it's still I don't know if it's still still working I mean I suppose what I've, I've heard rumors Mike that you know Amazon are going to move towards or all of these kind of companies you know, with the rise of, of AI are going to move towards like allowing you to hear things in your own voice or, or the voice of people that you know, which, which just freaks me out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's certainly not something that I would want. No. Um, I mean, do you think we need celebrity voices, Benjamin? Is it is it kind of a, a big loss that they're getting rid of this? You know, I, I remember some of the early systems where you would have this very grating accent reading things out, and it was just incredibly frustrating. So I think having the ability to choose the accent that you have um, and that what you're listening to is important. I think there's people all around the world who find certain accents difficult to understand and others easier to understand. So I think being able to choose between a variety of accents, to choose the one that you find easy to understand and easy to listen to, great. And yeah, you know, if you want to pick a celebrity to, you know, read books out to you or um, you want you know, maybe maybe we could get you know celebrity voices on this podcast. You know, if that if listeners would like that, and that would make this podcast more useful, then you know, great. Um, so I, th- I think there is something about certain certain accents are a pleasure to listen to, and so to that extent, yeah, I think why not? I think on the sat nav, it would make a long car journey much better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you could choose any celebrity voice for an AI assistant, Mike, who would it be? You should hear the uh, the satnav lady try to read the very long Dutch street names. It's, uh, <laughs> it, I mean, I can't say them myself, so I, I'm very sympathetic. But it's like when it's like thirty letters all jammed together, doesn't have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, which which celebrity would you get to well, read Dutch street it, names to you? No, it would have to be Arsen Wenger for me. So that I could right. chat about Arsenal matches with him, if it com- combined with a open AI um, 
system, getting Arsene Wenger's opinion on on recent matches would be a, a great conversational tool. Convince yourself you're back in the days of the Invincibles. So exactly. yeah, makes makes sense. Jason, what about you? You know, this is timely given the end of Succession. I want like oh no Brian spoilers, Co- please no spoilers. No spoilers. Please. I've not no spoilers. It. I've I not want Brian it. Cox like in character, like screaming at me in his sort of like Succession uh, uh, Waystar Royco um, affect. <laughs> that doesn't sound very soothing. <laughs> like, not at all. <laughs> okay, getting some good insights into 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 people. Benjamin, all right, who's who's your celebrity voice? Is this for a sat nav or just in, in it just general? Says, it just says an in, AI in assistant, so you can you can stipulate your celebrity, I suppose, and your and your assistant. I'm going to show my age a bit here, but I do like some of those classic British actors, like someone like Laurence Olivier or James Mason or someone like that. But they are quite soporific, so I think for a sat nav, not so good. <laughs> Send me to sleep. Um, but I, I like those sort of or Maggie Smith, you know, so a, a sort of classic British Shakespearean actor type. Suits you perfectly, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine, but again, it's not like like an age thing. I think mine would. I think mine would be David Attenborough. I just want David Attenborough to be with me always and forever. I'm still, yeah, just the best person. I don't know. Like, is David Attenborough like known outside of the UK? I feel like he's such a celebrity. Okay, he's 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 sufficiently global. Yeah, saving the world. Thanks, David. Okay, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Thank you for joining us and for your, for your opinions, your insights. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin? Uh, you can find me, uh, Benjamin Ensor, on LinkedIn, or you can find out about what the team are doing at 11fs.com. Brilliant. Jason, what about you? Uh, you can find the newsletter and podcast at fintechbusinessweekly.com, or I'm, yes, still on Twitter for the moment at uh, MakulaJA. Go check it out. And Mike, what about you? And you can find me on the Innovate Finance website. And if your listeners want to come along to our next public event, we're selling tickets now for Findlake as a Force for Good, which is taking place in October in London. Awesome. Check it out. And as for me, you can drop me an email, kate at levenfest.com or contact me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at levenfest.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.